0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 317 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I've actually been growing some psilocybin mushrooms and I haven't tasted them yet but uh, they're currently drying out but there will be mushroom talk on this episode because my guest in this episode is amanita expert amanita dreamer and we are going to talk about the magical and mysterious and sacred and amazing mushroom known as amanita muscaria you know the one that's white with a red top and white dots and uh, Amanita Dreamer has a lot of great information on her website if you want to start working with the Amanita. Just go to amanitadreamer.net You can also uh, support the podcast if you want to become a patron or subscribe to the YouTube channel or follow in social media. All the links are in the program notes or on natural one Anyway, here is Amanita Dreamer So thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation.
0: So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what, you're, what you're doing?
1: So my name is Amanita Dreamer, and I, about three years ago, I was trying to come off of a benzodiazepine class of drugs. It, it was a pretty heavy drug. I'd been on it for um, 10 years, trying to get off of it for five, and wound up just really not functional, suicidal and was really close to pulling the trigger and leaving the planet. And I just heard this voice, for lack of a better word, that told me to go into the forest. And when I did, I found this brightly colored orange-red mushroom and I looked it up and found out what it was. And I took it, it saved my life, and I knew that there had to be thousands, maybe millions of people who were in the same situation and could have used it. So I, I wanted to help spread the word about it and end the misinformation on the internet. So I started a YouTube channel, <laughs> made a video on how to prepare it because nobody had it right. And uh, I think one more about using tech. walked away and just figured, you know, whatever. At least I did that much. Came back a couple of months later and there were over, you know, 600 people Sub to the channel, a bunch of questions, and it just took off from there. And so my life is devoted to this now. And I have my own website, AmanitaDreamer.net, because of censorship by YouTube. I have my own store because of censorship by Etsy. And I have my own patron site because of censorship by Patreon. <laughs> and here we are.
0: I've heard this a lot, talking to different people, especially if they're in, in the... United States or North America is that they often bring up, I used to be on benzo. Uh, So it seems like it's a very common uh, drug that they uh, try to push.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that was a mostly American thing. I do have a lot of people from England. Um, Not necessarily the whole UK. It seems to be mostly England that they seem to also get it a lot but you know now that you mentioned it that yeah it really it really must be just like mostly an American thing and I mean but that doesn't surprise me you know capitalism.
0: Well I, I, I'm not sure uh, I because it's English speaking I mainly speak with with American and, and English and that so maybe I haven't spoken spoken to many French people so maybe they have same problem there but when people mention Benzo they often speak about suicidal thoughts so it seems like a, a very bad a drug if that's like a side effect and i know my wife at one point she didn't get that one but she had a, an issue one time and she got some pharmaceutical and and when she only took it one time because she got suicidal thoughts right away and she'd never had that in her whole life so she got scared taking that stuff
1: yeah after 10 years uh, i knowing what i know now it that class of drugs works on one of our senses that I am trying to educate people about that we don't consider as one of our senses that we're born with, and that is your sense of awareness of your space, and your your existence on the planet, your life force energy, and your sensing of it. And when you get depressed or sick, it can withdraw and get small. And when you are full of life and joy and have goals, it's very large. And Amanita taught me that because it just really expands that and it's interesting to me then whatever that's working on physiologically in our bodies to make me sense that in such an amazing way then whatever it is that benzodiazepines are doing that are also using that same the same GABA pathways it's destructive to that pathway and it withdrew my beingness and my my want to be here and my sense of presence and ownership of my space, my, my sense of, of consciousness and, and that I had a right to be here, it withdrew to the point where I, I felt very strongly that I needed to not be here.
0: So I live in the northern parts of Europe, and the Amanita is like a, a national uh, symbol, almost, you could say, where I live. But it's also ever since I was a child... I've always known that it was dangerous, don't touch it, just look at it. And uh, it was only when I started working with psychedelics that I, I had to unbrainwash my brain to understand that uh, th- this was wrong. But can you talk a bit about that? Because it, it's it's a very common piece of um, prejudice when, when you talk about Amanita, that it's dangerous.
1: Yeah, it... Um There's interesting, a man named uh, William Rubel wrote a very lengthy paper about that, about how mushrooms, how he became a mycophobic sort of society, and then why this one mushroom in particular. And after speaking with him, I I understand it a little bit better now, but that was one of the most difficult things about trying to take it the first time. And it wasn't that I was worried it was going to kill me because it would have done me a favor. I just didn't know how bad the death was going to be if all those things I read were right. And it turns out that not only is it not deadly, but it is the life affirming, life giving. It is the mushroom of life. And a lot of it has to do with the austerity movement of the 1800s around the world sort of coinciding with the Industrial Revolution and that push away from nature and natural things. And that push toward modern medicine, modern, you know, for their time and scientists trying to prove their value and their worth and help people understand that they really could make good drugs and good things to really help people. And they were sort of like in this fight for the minds of the people to trust them And they went on this campaign, especially the robber barons and all the people that had all the money. They had these vested interests in getting people to use their cars, their products and their pharmaceuticals and their doctors and all of the things that they were putting money behind. It was the beginning of capitalism. And they knew that the best way to do that was to start to tell stories about natural medicine. And at the same time, sort of take away shamanism and natural ways that humans interacted with the earth and their own medicine people. And if you can break that, that social structure and that dependence on that connection to the earth, then you have a much better chance of... Getting people to move to corporate medicine and corporate ideologies and the money sides of things. And it was all sort of happening simultaneously. And of course, it started well before that when uh, Christianity was first sweeping its way through Europe. And then also during the Industrial Revolution, you know, there were a couple of deaths, mushroom deaths, that. The robber barons who owned the media really pushed and publicized as sort of a way to say, see, look, you can't trust the natural world. And that, that was the message in those articles. And it turns out, based on the way they died, it was likely a destroying angel, you know, the amatoxins, which is not this mushroom. But they said it was this mushroom. And likely because of the power of this mushroom, of what an amazingly complex Medicine, it is. It seems to me it's so amazing. It would it would be one of the first ones to attack, and sort of scare people away from. And I don't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This, there's research behind this. You would have to. Uh, we can link maybe to William Rubel's paper. And I'm doing a documentary on Amanita, and I I interview him, and he, he discusses this in it. So it's this is sort of a well-founded theory. I think of his and in America, it also happened near the same time that we were going through outlawing alcohol. And there was that austerity movement in America to stop being inebriated or using drugs of any kind and getting out of your mind in any way, getting high in any way. And that, that movement worked and that was the beginning of a lot of the issues that America now has and our, that our drug laws are based on. So, you know, it's like it's a lot of things that happened around the world sort of back to back.
0: So would you say then it's not dangerous to eat right from the ground or or do you mean after you've uh, dried it out or done something to it?
1: Well, it's just dose based. And so it's, it is very powerful. And the other problem is the amount. So the two actives are ibotenic acid and muscomol. And ibotenic acid is the predominant one. And you can decarboxylate it through different preparation methods. And when you do, you take a carboxyl group off and it turns it into muscomol. And so there is a little bit of muscomol on board. And both of these drugs are extremely powerful, very good drugs, both have their medicinal uses. But because it's mostly ibotinic acid in that fresh cap sitting in the ground, you just have to be really careful. And I can't just say it's okay to eat a whole one. Like that, that would be overdosing and that would not be a good thing. But many people just break off a piece and and eat it in the morning. There's a lot of historical indigenous use as a tonic which now that i've studied it and looked at it it's it's a stimulant that works really well and and there are a lot of people now that are using it to help with their add adhd it's, it's just a good way to wake up and get the day going for a lot of people but when you go beyond like one small bite the size of your thumbnail then that's dose dependent. You'd have to sort of work with that and see. And, and I did it on camera. I took a bite of one during fruiting season and the results were just amazing. If anyone's ever seen that movie Limitless, um, this it felt like that drug, that made up drug in that movie Limitless. And I felt like I was in a gamma flow state and I was able to problem solve multidimensionally and see things from many angles and points of view and run different scenarios. If I do this, then this is gonna be the result. If I do this, this will be the result. And I was able to run different choices and different solutions to problems simultaneously, four, five, six, eight, and, and problem solve in seconds and figure out the one that was going to be the best solution, implement it and move on. And there was a lot of time distortion so that I was doing a lot really rapidly and moving quickly. And when it sort of left my system and I look back at everything I accomplished, it felt like an hour. But in reality, it had been about six. And that was just from one bite. I I think that I could take more than that now that I've worked with it a lot. But again, the the amounts in any one mushroom are so highly variable that you can't just make a statement about dosing because you could have a large mushroom, the size of your hand, and it would have X amount of ibotenic acid. And then you could have a small one next to it and it could have X times six in it. And so the size of the mushroom or the location or none of that, you can tell you how much ibotenic acid is going to be in it. So that's also an issue that you know, when you do take a bite of it, that you could be getting what's called a hot dose, which is when you get one that's just super strong versus getting a really weak one that you don't get much from. So that's a long answer to a short question, but it's not a simple answer. You know what I mean?
0: When I'm walking in the forest and I happen to see like a deer or or an animal, you know, you it's always amazing. Oh, look, an animal, you know, I always have the same reaction wh- when I come across the Amanita. It just sticks out, you know, uh, it, it's like magical almost when you see it. But where I live, it's the uh, white stem, uh, red and white dots. But uh, as I understand, they, are, they look different uh, uh, in North America or, or, or similar.
1: They're very similar depending on the location. So the European continent, this is what we think happened. We believe that the first Amanita rose up in Siberia, in that area, and that humans helped carry their spores as they migrated. And so as they migrated west into Europe, those were the same spores, same Amanita. And so all of the ones in Europe are Amanita muscaria. But the ones that went east across the Bering Strait, they believe that possibly the Sami people were the ones who brought the Amanita across the Bering Strait during the Ice Age over into Canada and down into North America. And because the weather is so variable and different because of the Rocky Mountains, the mycelium had to start getting creative and they changed the nutrients that they were able to survive with and the trees that they were able to create mycorrhizal relationships with. And because of that, they started changing their color and the way that they look. And so we have different varieties here in the United States. Some are the original Amanita muscaria, like up in Canada, those are original Amanita muscaria. But then as you work your way east across Canada and then south down to the United States, you get more variants depending on the location. And then finally, they changed so much as they worked their way down to the southeastern United States that once we started doing all the genetic testing and recategorizing mushrooms based on genetics, then the ones down here where I live in the southeastern U.S. were Amanita muscaria, and they were just variety persicina. They now became their own species. So the ones in the southeast are now a new species of Amanita and it's not Amanita muscaria; it's Amanita persicina.
0: Where I live, it's one of the most free countries in the world, apart from one area, which is drugs. When it's like more like North Korea, it's backwards for some reason. And I always think it's funny during Christmas because the Amanita is is a very much more than in the United States. is It's a very important symbol during Christmas. I mean, every family, when if you go to their house or home. They have uh, amanita ornaments all over the place during Christmas, but nobody is thinking about what they actually have as ornaments. I always think that's uh, funny, you know.
1: I think it's funny too, but I'm glad because it means I can collect them.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, my yeah, I I, uh, uh, I, ha- I had to stop at one point because I had too much amanita ornaments all over the place. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't think I'll ever stop. It's like a sickness for me.
0: I actually, when I got uh, my house, uh, because it was, it had a a white foundation and a red, the top floor was red. I wanted to paint it with white dots, you know, but unfortunately, you know, there's laws against that and I would have to, you're not allowed to paint your house any way you want, which is a bit dumb, but uh, (laughs) that was an idea.
1: I had no idea that that could even be a thing.
0: Well, maybe it's not where where you live, but where I am. it's 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 not allowed. Um, which is which is a shame, which is why you always see houses with like similar shades of bland colors instead of like rainbows and whatever. Um, but you know, have you had any experience with psilocybin, which most people uh, that are interested in psychedelics, they have tried you know normal magic mushrooms. If you've had that experience, could you give like a, uh, what's the difference between this the, w- between psilocybin and amanitas in general?
1: Yeah, so my first psilocybin experience, I did eight and a half grams. And I wanted to make sure, because I was really afraid, I wanted to make sure that I didn't sort of wind up in a middle area where I could fight it. I just wanted it to take me. I wanted to take a lot so that I knew there was no way to fight it, that it would just, I would go. And so I took eight and a half grams. And then my next experience, it took me about a year and a half to process that experience. Uh, and then my next experience was three and a half grams. And what I believe now in my limited experience with psilocybin is that Amanita muscaria works on our memories from pre-birth up to about age six when that vault closes and it sort of locks in our personalities and our core beliefs and so any trauma and issues that happen from pre-birth like to age six is where amanita really shines and because that's where we're developing a sense of self amanita is very strong about helping you own your ego love your ego Feel your presence and your space and your power here. It really is the power mushroom. And so it's not a mistake that Mario uses it to power up. It really is a powerful mushroom. And what I believe psilocybin does then is it will work on your relationship to others. Where Amanita works on your relationship to yourself and potentially if you believe in past lives or maybe intergalactic existence and beings that you have been before. And then the elders and the ancestors, that's where Amanita is in relation to the self. And then psilocybin seems to be more of once you leave that, that age range of six, seven, eight, and you start getting into that space where you really want to branch out and create relationships to other people and other living things that it, it feels like psilocybin shines there. It helps you deal with trauma, that happened to you during that time, or trauma and bad messaging that happened in your core years, but is now affecting your interpersonal relationships. And it helped me, it, it was a very outward focused experience. And even when I did go in, in silence and meet all the entities that I met, which was just amazing and beautiful, they were more, um, outside of me and concerned with my relationship to other people and less so about my relationship to myself. And I learned so much about the other living things on the planet, not just animals, but plants that they are also sentient. And so psilocybin feels very much like learning to live here on the planet while also being introduced to our existence off the planet and the other beings that exist that are potentially here, depending on what you make of your trip experiences and whether they're real or not in the nature of reality. And I got to go to the construct and where universes and realities were being built right out of the universal hum into fractals. And while I was there on that psilocybin trip, after I met the machine elves <laughs> that worked on my brain, they asked if I had questions. I said, yeah, I'd like to meet Amanita through this experience. And they said, sure. And they, they took me to a door that said employees only, which I thought was pretty funny. And I went through the door and there was the Amanita entity, the mother, the feminine Amanita entity. And she's like, Oh, Hey, come on in, you know, look around, whatever. And it was interesting to get to meet her through the eyes of psilocybin and have a conversation with her there. So that to me is the difference. The entities that I meet on Amanita are not other world, potentially other galactic beings, you know, like the octopus, people, the frog, the insectoids. Like I met all of, all of those on psilocybin on Amanita. You meet Loki and Thor or different versions of the joking, the laughing, the joyful, the playful, and then the work the dark lord, the darkness, the power, and then the feminine above them both, but you also meet the ancestors, not only the mushroom ancestors, which are sentient and still very much here, but our ancestors and elders, our human ones. And so it's a dance, this beautiful conversation between the fungi elders and the human elders going back thousands of years.
0: I ha- I have a tiny bit of land, uh, and uh, I was gr- I'm growing uh, some food and that. But I was thinking, like, I wanted to uh, have some amanitas growing here and there. Are they are they difficult f- to like make them grow naturally, or or because <laughs> uh, I know like when you grow uh, psilocybin mushrooms, it's quite a complicated process. But I was just thinking, like, in in th- in on the land, you know.
1: Yeah, we can't grow them in a lab, but what we can do, the going rate for putting spores out on the land and actually getting them to fruit is about 5%. But I developed a slurry and I tested it and I had a 75% success rate. So I made a video about how to slurry And it's something I believe we all really should do, whether you want to use the mushroom or not, to help those people who do want to use it. And so what you have to do is when they're fruiting, you go gather them and you can follow my directions on making a slurry. And then you take that slurry out and you put it around the base of trees that you have already researched in your area that the Amanita in your area will grow with, that they will create mycorrhizal relationships with. And then you study the trees in your area to see what the pattern is. Like, are they growing with old growth or are they growing with new trees? Are they growing in areas that stay sort of wet? Are they along water? Are they in drier areas? Are they on sloping hills? So see where it is that they tend to grow and what they prefer. And then find trees that, that are like that and pour your slurry there, and you should get, you know, about a good seventy-five percent chance that that you'll get some fruiting. It'll be a small amount, and then if you keep doing that every year, slurrying that same area every year, you you are increasing the diversity because uh, they they undergo sexual reproduction, right? So they they need more diversity, and so the more that you gather from different places and slurry that area with more genetic material then you just increase the fruiting and how hardy that mycelium is going to be
0: would it be um, beneficial you think to the area or like cause sometimes there are certain plants you shouldn't like place because they take over and ruin uh, the area because they kill off other plants or things you're growing but uh, w- what would be your knowledge of the amanita in this case
1: Well, Amanita is an opportunist and they will crowd out other mycorrhizal mushroom species that are also, that also grow with that same tree. But it's rare to have a situation where you have a mycorrhizal mushroom that's also growing with the same tree in your area. So it is not considered an invasive species anywhere in the world except Australia, Australia. But it's kind of a that it's illegal there only for that reason, which makes no sense to me, because I mean, it when you have humans taking spores around the world like that, what's invasive and what isn't. And they were the ones who imported the pine trees to create these pine tree plantations. And they imported the spores along with it and the mushroom grows with that tree. So it was imported with the tree. They want the tree, but not the mushroom. And so that's, but that's Australia. But no, it's not invasive because it won't knock out any other mushroom except a mushroom that's also mycorrhizal with that same tree. And because that's such a rare thing, then then no, that... And, and and it depends on if you wanted that other mushroom to be there. So, like, they tend to grow alongside edible boleeds. I see that a lot. Uh, and I don't know if it's just because there's a lot of different trees in the area. And so each mushroom has got their own mycorrhizal relationship with its own tree. Or if they just really work well together. But that tends to be a thing. That you can find really good edible boletes fruiting alongside amanitas.
0: Yeah, when I walk in the forest and I see them, they, I always see them like little families. Uh, they're ne- they never like uh, this crowd the whole area. Just like a group here, a group over there, you know, and uh, uh, fairly common to find if you go looking. So I, I don't really need to grow them. I, I just want. Uh, I just think it would be fun to have them nearby, but. Um, uh, I don't know if they're like small children, if they take a bite, if that's not good, I, I'm not sure. I so maybe wait a few years until my kids are a bit older. I don't know.
1: I know that I dose my cats with it. I do rescues, you know, I have five cats and they all have some mental health issues from, you know, their babyhood and trauma that, that they endured. And I've just watched this mushroom transform them. Very careful, you know, to start really, really small, and they get really tiny doses. But they they really enjoy it. They want to eat it, and when I make the tea and give it to them, they they lick it right up. They know it's medicine, which is interesting. Uh, we know that foxes eat it, and deer, squirrels, um, mice. There's a lot of animals that that use it as medicine. But I think if a child took a bite, they'd probably spit it out. I mean, it's kind of gritty and it's, it's not the best taste. I mean, mushrooms don't taste good raw. Like there, there aren't that many mushrooms that just taste good raw. So I can't imagine a child, even if they were enamored with the color, that they would get past taking a bite and then continue to chew it with the dirt and the grit and the texture and the the taste of it. It's true. It's probably
0: just, like, decades of, of, like, my the society I live in, like, war- warning me about this mushroom, you know. It's very hard to get rid of that, like, fear that's in your spine, you know, because uh, they really pushed it. I mean, because where I live, it's not like Australia. Where I live, there's nothing dangerous in the forest. If you're unlucky and you meet a, a moose or an elk, uh, uh, you know... An, it could be dangerous if it has kids and that. But, I mean, like, there's nothing dangerous. No plant, no dangerous insects, nothing. Uh, except the Amanita, apparently, according to the official version. So, it's uh, uh, a hard thing. It's also very hard, w- I think, it would be to convince others here where I am anyway to to, to try it uh, because of this reason, uh, which is a shame. But uh, I'm also thinking, like in a sense, also good because I'm a bit, you know, I want it to be uh, not a criminal to use any of these natural substances, but I'm also seeing this negative trend with like uh, the stock market, psychedelics on the stock market and trying to make uh, them into a pill and removing, making it wholesome, I guess is the term, and like uh, making it, uh, yeah, like a pharmaceutical drug and and uh having people take it in a sterile uh, clinic or something like that i I have i don't like this development somehow in a sense uh, maybe i like it when it's underground but it shouldn't be i still don't think anybody should like get arrested for using it of course but uh, maybe it's good that it's like below the surface i don't know how do you feel about all, all those developments
1: I agree. It's just, it's a really tricky thing because I don't want to gatekeep it because I know so many people that need it and they're suffering and I'm filming this documentary about it. And once that's released, I mean that everyone's going to know about it, hopefully. And then there's that issue that, yeah, like there's the corporatization of natural medicines and it's trendy right now and everyone's jumping on it and corporations are, finding different ways to patent either like the process that they use to convert ibotenic acid to muscomol, because in current thinking muscomol is the drug you want and society is completely missing the value of ibotenic acid. And so they're really pushing the muscomol side of this thing. Um, there are people that are trying to get a trademark and a law that says they're the only company that could, package the raw or the powdered or the dried version of the mushroom and sell it. So there's different ways that, that companies are all, all of them are sort of in this race to be the first so that they can do that. And I'm conflicted about that because like you said, once you get something on the radar like that, then the government is going to have to start regulating And you come up to the FDA with with your papers and your testing, and you want them to declare something about it. Well, then you've made governments aware of it. And then what are they going to do? Are they going to get greedy? Are they going to get fearful? Are they going to outlaw it? Are they going to start paying attention when people overdose and count how many people are overdosing and winding up in the ER or the emergency department, and then use that as an excuse to make it illegal? is money going to win? And, and that's the other thing is, as much as I have issues with corporations, if our government wanted to move in the direction of making it illegal, they would have to do so knowing that corporations have put millions of dollars into research to bring that product to market. And a lot of times governments aren't willing to to do that, especially if those corporations have the money to get their attention and to say, "You please don't do this. So in a way, it's helpful to have corporations doing this. It's also helpful for people that are afraid, that do see the conflicting information on the internet, that have been told this is a dangerous mushroom, but they do need help for their panic attacks and their anxiety or their depression or their pain that they're in or their migraines or whatever they're taking it for. And they want to be able to take it. They find my website, they find the mushroom voice, they find the products I sell, but they're still afraid. They don't know how to dose it because I can't tell them. They don't know what it's going to do because I can't make claims about it. They're nervous about buying it dried from one of, one of my vendors They they trust my discernment, but they get it and they don't know they don't trust themselves to make it. And so what a corporation offers them is a pill that has gone through testing and is standardized and it feels safe. And if that's what it takes to get people the help they need, then I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful they have that. So it's very conflicting. I don't I don't see a a clean answer.
0: So w- when it comes to those, I mean, like with uh, magic mushrooms, you like you said, you take eight grams and you understand how strong that is. So next time maybe you take three grams. But how can you how can you figure out your dosage with the Amanita if each one is different? And and I mean, if you take a little and you notice it's not strong enough, and maybe you take more. Or but you know, like when you when you have like a mushroom ceremony. You, normally, you, you're not sitting there eating constantly, you know, like you take it and then you wait. But I mean, how, how would you figure that out?
1: Yeah, it's very different with Amanita. So you have to develop a personal relationship with the mushroom. And this is where I think a lot of the problems happen with Amanita is people just want to jump in and have a trip. They think that trip is supposed to be all muscimol, and so they want to decarb it fully. They think that high dose is better. And before having any relationship with this mushroom at all, they'll take a high dose of muscamol and then they'll get sick or they'll wind up in the emergency room or something. So what you have to do is start very small and talk to the mushroom and microdose it and develop a relationship with it. And the way that you do that is by making the tea. I have the recipe on my website, aminidadreamer.net on the how to prepare. And if you take 15 grams and make, one full cup or 240 mils of tea, then what you've done is as you weigh out that 15 grams and you pull from different dried mushrooms, right? You're reducing your chances of hot dosing and you're making a more normalized chemical solution by breaking off pieces of different mushrooms to get 15 dried grams on that scale that you're then going to make the tea with. And the when you do that every single time, then you have reduced the highs and the lows so that you have a more normalized, averaged solution that will vary much less in potency each time you make it. And so that's pretty much the only way you're going to get any consistency in dosing. But the tea is only one way to take it. That's that's In that way... You have made it about 30% decarbed. Um, drying may, dry, may convert about 10 or 15%. And then when you heat it in the tea, you may convert like another 30 And then you can do tech. So we can get about between 70 and 80% converted. And what you can do is microdose and find your microdose and continue to increase your microdose. I have a microdosing protocol. You don't have to do the whole microdosing course, but once you feel safe with it, then macrodose. Double or triple your microdose and just keep going up until you feel like you've moved into sort of a trip space with it. And I have a video on that and about how to find your dose and what that should feel like, what a micro, macro, and heroic dose should feel like. And then the sky is the limit once you know how you are going to react to the tea. And once you start to get gastric issues like crampy and that kind of thing, then you know that you've got to stop there because that's where you're having your issues with ibotenic acid. And at that point, you will need to switch over to doing a full muscamol conversion. And I have a whole playlist about the different methods of doing that. So wherever you get in your dosing, let's say that you can take a half a cup of that tea and then you start to get crampy and nauseous, well, then that's going to be the highest dose you can take of ibotenic acid and muscomol sort of mixed. At that point, you'll need to make a full muscomol conversion. And start from there at that half a cup and and start working your way up on muscomol alone. And that will definitely get into your trip doses. But you can also smoke it. Can you just
0: say what you mean by um, conversion?
1: So converting that ibotenic acid to muscomol. So when you dry a raw mushroom, the heat is going to start that process. But because you're drying it out, you're losing that wetness. And so the chemical reaction stops. So you get a very limited amount of converting ibotenic acid to muscomol. And then when you simmer it in your to make the tea, you're going to convert another, say, up to 30% more of your ibotenic acid to muscamol. And then if you want to add lemon to it, then you're going to convert maybe another 20% or more, maybe. And so that's what I mean when I say conversion is getting turning ibotenic acid into muscomol. But you really should listen to the playlist about the importance of starting with a good mix of both because there's wisdom in the medicine of both sides before going to full muscimol, Full muscimol can be pretty brutal. It will get into the heart of your issues. And if you haven't already done gentler work on your inner core issues with both sides of this mushroom, with the joyful side of the ibotenic acid, that can sort of ease the way and sort of chip away at this stuff. If you haven't eased into this thing and you just jump into the muskmal a lot of people report it being a pretty bad experience because muskmal doesn't play around it it will yank out what it is that you need to see and put it in your face and show it to you and it can be really traumatizing and terrifying so i don't i would like to ask people not to do that to start with a mix of ibuprofenic acid and muscimol, and just keep working with it in higher and higher and higher doses.
0: Cool, that's very good advice. Uh, I uh, always think it's uh, for me. If I if I don't have this like uh, situation where where there is some fear involved, uh, I uh, always evaluate it as. Uh, bit of a failure so I always like to push myself but it's a very good it's a very good advice uh, for people uh, to take it easy everybody I- is different but I like you said when you took that eight grams you know you want you don't want any way to get out of it but of course with Amanita you have to be a bit careful so you because of the stomach cramps and that uh, would you need if you if you take too much would you need to go to hospital to like pump your stomach or
1: it depends I mean I know people have reported to me or I've actually witnessed them uh, in the middle of an overdose and it's sort of it's terrifying and scary and I know that some people have started to twitch or have like a seizure for a couple of seconds. And they didn't go to the hospital. It converted to muscimol. They slept really soundly for a very, very long time, which is what the muscimol side will do. But, you know, if you get into a place where you're throwing up and having seizures, you need to get some help. Because, I mean, it, we don't have deaths on record from this, and seizing isn't going to kill you. But it can just get really painful. And so they can really help you with drugs to calm and slow down your nervous system and help calm you and stop that side of it. But it's not going to stop that conversion in your body from ibotinic acid to muscamol. And whatever that large dose was of ibotinic acid that you took, you're now going to swing into the high dose side of the muscamol. And then that drug is going to do its thing. And that will depress your breathing and your heart rate and can put you in a coma like state for about twelve hours or so while your body's working that drug out of your body. And then, you know, when you're done, you'll get up and walk out and be like, Wow, that sucked. <laughs> so just maybe don't do that. Maybe just don't take a like a really big dose.
0: And there's nothing you can do like, like for instance, if you, if you take too much cannabis, you can like eat something sweet to lower the effect. There's no, no, no such thing you could do.
1: No, you're pretty much screwed. <laughs> you just got to ride it out and live with it. But I will say that, you know how if you have a really bad psilocybin trip and they if you go to the ER, they'll give you a benzodiazepine, which works on the, the GABA pathways. It's a GABAnergic drug. And that's the same pathways that Amanita works on. So if you want to hear a funny story, I'll tell you, Amanita can stop uh, a psilocybin trip. You can use it for that. And I was in Canada. I had gone to a dispensary and bought some mushrooms, never did get to use them because I was so busy harvesting Amanitas. So the morning of the that I had to fly out, I had to get a COVID test. And I hated that I didn't get to use the mushrooms. So I was going to microdose. So I just grabbed a stem of one of the mushrooms and ate it as I left for the airport. By the time I got to the airport, I was tripping. I was like, this is not good. And I got in line to get my COVID test and the colors were everywhere. And I had a fanny pack that had a galaxy on it. And the intake guy said, hey, I like your fanny pack. I went, woo, that's all I said and i was just tripping and he's like okay can i have your you know passport or id and i was really scared i didn't want to fly internationally tripping and i remembered i had an amanita tincture in my bag so i took a lot of amanita tincture and within about 10 minutes the trip was completely gone
0: that's very interesting i think so if people want to learn more about Amanita or, and find out more about your work, can you repeat your websites?
1: It is amanitadreamer.net. And that's where you can find all of the videos and information that you want to know about Amanita. If you want to get involved in any way, I've got a page for that. I have playlists and I have a free forum. And I have a, my patron community is Mushroom Voice. And my store is Mushroom Voice. And if you want to buy anything that I make, that's how I pay my way because I give all my information for free. I do podcasts for free. I write articles for free. I make all my videos for free. My YouTube channel is mental health. I do nature walks, mushroom walks, arts and crafts and creative videos and videos to help uplift you and help you out if you're trying to deal with benzodiazepine withdrawal. So I have my hands in a lot of things, but the YouTube channel is Amanita Dreamer. So if you type in Amanita Dreamer, you'll find me.
0: Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, host of Black Hoodie Alchemy on the Fringe FM. You can catch me every Monday evening, 6pm Pacific Time, where we uh, talk about the dark side of metaphysics and we'll chill a little bit. Uh, And you can catch me the day after on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever else you stream your podcasts. If you've ever wondered what someone like Carl Jung
1: might say about serial killers, or perhaps cryptids, then this is the show for you. Skeptical, yet open-minded, empirical,
0: but philosophical. We are going to talk about some really weird stuff. So I hope you join me on Black Hoodie Alchemy. Take it easy. Check out amanitadreamer.net. Lots of great information there. And easy to follow tutorials and videos. I'm thinking about having ads on the podcast. But I really don't want to do that. Uh, But it looks like it is inevitable. Um, But till then. Become a patron. Subscribe to my YouTube. Just search Natural Alchemist channel on YouTube. I do do some bothering, as you know. So here is another promo from a podcast that also promotes my podcast.
1: Welcome to Perceptions Today podcast. We will be discussing a wide variety of changing perceptions and ongoing research about topics such as consciousness, health, medicine,
0: science, physics, history, metaphysics, the paranormal, and reality. Join us as we learn and discover fascinating new information about these and other topics from people in the field
1: doing the research and having the experiences. During our discussions, we hope to engage you in the process to ignite your own creativity and alter your perceptions in new and exciting ways. The adventure begins now. Find us on podcast apps, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Once again, that's Perceptions Today.
0: Let's close this episode with Ode to Amanita Muscaria by Alex Atlantis. That's the name of the YouTube channel where I found this. Enjoy and uh, as always, freedom is in the mind.